Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to the book of Acts. Today we'll be in Acts 2, 1 to 13. Acts 2, 1 to 13. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, what a privilege it is to gather as your church, your bride, a manifestation of your people among many in our community and our world. Father, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we ask that you would speak to us. We remember the admonition not to be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. In Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much more is expected. And so, Father, as we look at your word, we don't want to be bloated with head knowledge, but transformational knowledge that molds us more and more into the image of your son. We ask, Father, that you would do this today. Father, we also pray for our world. We think of those in the Ukraine, now maybe 2.7 million, have left their countries as immigrants, many to Poland. Some will go to England, others to EU countries. We ask, Father, that you would protect those who are trying to flee. We ask that you would bring Vladimir Putin to justice, that the evil that he has perpetrated against a democracy would see justice. We ask that you would guide the world leaders and that anyone who might think of tyranny would have their motives checked and would turn from such wickedness. Father, grant wisdom to leaders all across the globe and grant wisdom to us as we mine your word. It's in the name of Christ we pray, amen. This morning, you and I are going to talk about apathy. Apathy happens imperceptibly. Apathy happens when life happens. And suddenly, when we were once on fire for the Lord, red hot, now we become lukewarm. We slide slowly away and Recreation happens, job happens, family happens, good things happen. And we take our eyes off of the Lord. We take our eyes off of the purposes that God has given us. And spiritual apathy can result. As I thought about apathy, I thought, well, I'm going to go to the source of all wisdom other than Scripture. The internet, of course. And I thought, let's just look at a few pictures that I think represent apathy. Here we have, well, that's just downright clever if you ask me, but it is a little apathetic. Here we have another picture of apathy. Thankfully, our first responders in central Wisconsin are not like this. That's a dangerous scenario. The next one I've nicknamed Two-Toe Tammy. 
Now, I don't know if she's just frugal or apathetic, but I guess it works for her. Here we have a student that is apathetic, or he is so studious, he doesn't have time to put the chair together. The next one is of a husband. That's his wife's birthday cake. I'm thinking that's not going to go well. Then we have a grandfather. I don't like this at all. I think grandparents have an incredible role. He ought to be with his granddaughter, teaching her scripture while he pushes her. The next one relates to today. Oh, yeah. If you have a building this large, you know how many clocks we have set? It would have been easier just to say plus one. And then the last one. This is my favorite. Yes, the escalator up and the escalator down. No pain and absolutely no gain. Apathy. As I thought about apathy, I thought of Soren Kierkegaard and a story he tells. Now, I don't know if you know anything about Soren Kierkegaard. He is a Dutch theologian and a philosopher. I want no part of his existentialism. What he teaches is essentially this. He says that you ought to find your purpose in life and pursue it. That's not true. That's not true. God has already given us the purpose. And we ought to pursue that purpose to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We're not looking for purpose. We have purpose. We just need to pursue the purpose that God has given us. But I mention Soren Kierkegaard today because I want to use an illustration that I think he came up with. And the illustration is of a church, a duck church. Everyone in the town, they're all ducks. And Sunday morning comes, and all the ducks waddle from their house down their street, and they go to church. And the choir gets up and leads the ducks in several songs. And then the pastor, they call him the quacker. I don't much appreciate that. The quacker gets up and he gives the message. And the message that day was this. You are ducks. Ducks have wings. Wings are for the purpose of flying. You ducks can fly. You can soar like eagles. And they're all quacking amen. Soar like eagles, O oh ducks. And then he finished the message, one last song, and they all waddled out, and they waddled down the street back to their homes. In other words, there was apathy. They heard truth. They even applauded truth. They said amen to truth. And they did nothing with truth. Apathy. Today's text encourages us to steal our lives against apathy. I want to read from Acts 2. I want to read verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, Penta means 50. 
after Jesus ascended from the grave, he was on the earth for 40 days and then he ascended into heaven. You remember Acts 1, 11, men of Galilee, why do you look up into the heavens? Do you not know that as he ascended, so he will descend? That's the 40th day. And from the 40th day to Pentecost is 10 days in between. When the day of Pentecost arrived, 50 days after the resurrection of Christ, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in their own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all those who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language. Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in their own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying one to another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. You remember back in Acts chapter one, at that 40 days when Jesus ascended, he said to the disciples, now numbering 120, you are to gather in the upper room. And they were to gather in this upper room and they were to pray and they were to study scripture and they were to pray and they were to study scripture and they weren't just there for 10 minutes or 10 hours. They were there for 10 days, 10 days. And then we read verse one. That's hardly apathy, by the way. Verse one, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's a bit redundant, isn't it? If you're all together, you already know you're in one place, right? I don't think that's the correct way to understand the text. I think it reads this way. And they were in Pentecost. They were all together in oneness. Epi to ato. It's not talking about they're all together in one place. That's true, but it's redundant. It's saying that on Pentecost, they're together and there developed a oneness. They became one, one with another. That's what happens when we study God's word. That's what happens when you and I pray together. There becomes a oneness, a togetherness. There were no spirit breakers among them. There were no individuals who thought they had the spiritual gift of criticism or judgmentalism. There was a oneness as they began to pull together. They understood what we saw last week. Matthew eleven twelve. From the time of John the Baptist until day, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing. As forceful men lay hold of it, there's a oneness together that calls us to pull together to do great things for the kingdom. Such oneness was empowered by God's spirit. Hardly apathetic. In verse 1, it says that it is Pentecost. 
What it doesn't tell us is what day this is on the Jewish calendar. This is the Feast of Harvest. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you. You could go to Exodus 34 and you can learn a little bit about the Feast of Harvest. One of the things you would discover about the Feast of Harvest is this. After four months of sowing seed and bringing water and weeding and caring, then you harvest and you are told that 10% of everything you harvest, you are to give to the local synagogue. So I think we could legitimately, in verse 1, have a sermon on giving. But that's not what I'm going to do today. The Feast of Harvest tells me something else. Was it coincidental, by the way? Was it accidental? Did God just get lucky that Pentecost just happened to land on the Feast of Harvest? Or was that decided by God in eternity past? knowing full well that his son would speak of metaphors of harvest of something far more important than grain or wheat. He would talk about souls. And when at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes upon us, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to empower us to be God's witness. Listen to how Jesus uses this idea of harvest. John four thirty five. Do you not say... There are yet four months. Then comes the harvest. Look, don't wait four months. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. See that the fields are white for harvest. Or Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Jesus said to the disciples, pray to the Lord of harvest that he will raise up harvesters for his harvest field. Pray, church to the Lord of the harvest, that he will send out laborers into his harvest fields. They are white. They're ready to be brought in. They're ready to be harvested. And the interesting thing about that prayer request that we're commanded to pray is that we are the fulfillment of that prayer. We pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field, which are white under harvest, something far more important than wheat, souls, and God says, great prayer, Jeff. I'm sending you. And then fill in your name. Great prayer, your name. I'm sending you. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are therefore God's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be ye reconciled to God. We are the fulfillment of that prayer. Was it an accident? Did God just get lucky? Was it coincidence that Pentecost, the day in which the Holy Spirit no longer just comes and goes, but resides in believers, if you have confessed Christ as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit is in you, and one of the purposes of the Holy Spirit in you is to be a witness for the Lord, is it accidental that Pentecost fell on the day of harvest? Or is it a divine metaphor to remind us of one of the roles that you and I have, and that's to share salvation with others? Now, a question we might ask is this. Are we up for the task? And the answer is no and yes. No, on our own, we're absolutely not up to the task. 
But because of verses two and three, we are up to the task. Notice in verses two and three, we have two metaphors for the Holy Spirit. We have rushing wind and we have fire lighting on all of the heads of those of whom the Holy Spirit has just entered. Think about the wind. It's the Greek word pneuma, spirit. In the Old Testament, it's ruach. And it's intertwined from Genesis to Revelation as a metaphor of the Lord. I don't have time to develop it, but I'll give you a couple illustrations. Genesis 1-2, the Spirit hovered, God's Spirit hovered over the firmaments. Uh, that was the wind hovering. It's a metaphor for Christ. I think of Ezekiel 37-9, you know the passage. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. We have a valley filled with cadavers, a valley filled with bones that are not connected to anything else. And God breathes. And all of a sudden, the cadavers come to life. And there's an entire army as though God were breathing on an unbeliever, bringing him out of darkness and into light. A picture of God's spirit working. In Ezekiel 37, so the spirit, the, the breath, the wind represents God's spirit. And what about the fire? It represents the, the presence of the Lord. We can make this point all over scripture. I'm going to make it from Exodus. You remember Exodus chapter 3, the burning bush. The bush is on fire. It is not consumed. And a voice comes out of the bush that says, take off your shoes, you are on holy ground. And it's the presence of God. You think of Exodus 13. God is leading the people out of bondage in Egypt through Yom Suf, the Sea of Reeds. He's leading them to the promised land. And by night, it's a pillar of what? A pillar of fire representing the presence of God. I think of Exodus 24, where Mount Sinai is a glow on fire, representing the presence of God. That's in the area and the passage in which the Ten Commandments are given. You think of Exodus 40, where you have the tabernacle, the precursor to the temple, the presence, the earthly abode of God, and there's fire over the tabernacle. And so the wind represents the spirit. The fire represents the presence of God. Now, all of the illustrations I just gave us are corporate, except Exodus 3, burning bush. That was kind of individual. And the corporate aspect of God's spirit working among us was already covered in verse 1, right? And it was the day of Pentecost, and they were all together in one accord. Epituato. Rato, it's the, the, the unity. He's already talked about the unity of the brothers and sisters in the Lord. But in verses 2 and 3, the fire lights not overall, but individually on each of their heads. And so we have the corporate aspect of God's Spirit working among us. But we have the individual aspect of God's Spirit moving in and among believers. The idea is that that we could easily get lost in a room like this. 
I'm not sure if there's 900 or 1,000 chairs set up. We could easily be lost in this room, right? Or we could be lost online. We're watching online and, and we're just kind of learning a little bit, but not really serving. So the picture is that the fire lights on corporately all of them. The, the wind blows over the whole group. But the fire lights on each person individually because God wants each of us to engage. Apathy gone. From the time of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing as forceful men, women, children lay hold of it. So far, so good. And then we come to verse four. So far, verse one, two, and three seems like unity. And then we got to throw tongues in there. And tongues has not been a very unifying aspect in the church. I'm not going to add to the disunity. I am going to make two comments. First, the word tongue is glossalia. It's the same word really used in Acts and in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 that talks about a language. That's what it really means. It's a language. And notice in Acts 2.4, it's a known language that is unknown by the speaker. Verse eight, everyone hears in their own language. Verses nine to 11, we have 15 different groups out there. There might be more, but 15 I just read from the text. And a Galilean begins to speak and everyone hears in their own native tongue. And so the most descriptive verse on tongues, really in scripture, that tells us something of what is going on is a known language unknown to the speaker, but known to the hearers. Now, I'm not really talking about a private prayer language. That would be another message for another sermon. But the first thing I want to note is that tongues, at least in Acts 2, is a known language unknown to the speaker. The second thing I would note is this. If we were to go to 1 Corinthians 14... That would be the passage, really, I would want to develop a theology on tongues. In verse 18 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, I speak in more tongues than all of you. So at least at that moment, at that time, he is not causing it to be divisive. He's saying, you know what? I'm all over this. I speak in tongues. But then the next verse, 1 Corinthians 14, 19 says this when I'm gathered, when I'm with the body, when I'm in the church, I would choose to speak five intelligible words than 10,000 words of a tongue. We've allowed an issue to become divisive that doesn't need to be divisive. Oh, not here at Highland, it hasn't been. But it's been divisive in the church well, Paul was rather clear. When you gather together as a church, when you gather together in Bible studies, when we are corporately gathered, we're going to speak five intelligible words. Sometimes I get all five in one sermon. We are going to do five intelligible words rather than 10,000 words of a tongue. That is our commitment. Now, the point of Acts 2.4 is not to develop a theology of tongues but it's to teach us of the empowerment of God's spirit upon us corporately as we are in one accord and individually as the spirit works in and through us 
to do great things for the kingdom. And apparently great things are being done. Look at verse 7. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are these not Galileans speaking? Now that may strike us as odd. We have 15 nationalities mentioned. Maybe more were there. I don't know. And they know that Jews are speaking to them. But actually, they identify the Jews as living way up north. The Galilee is up north. In fact, Capernaum, which is at the northern tip of Kinneret. It's a word that means harp. That's the, the shape of the Galilee. The very top of it, the Sea of Galilee is Capernaum. Eight of our disciples came from there. And they're saying, these people speaking, they're from way up north. How do they know they're not from central Jerusalem or way down south by the Dead Sea? How do they know they're way up north? And why does it matter? Why is it mentioned in the text? Well, they know they're Galileans because Galileans can't pronounce certain gutturals. They can't pronounce P's, T's, and K's. They can't pronounce them. So it sounds like they're lisping. It sounds like they're not quite able to enunciate words as many of us can. This actually plays out in the Gospels, doesn't it? You remember Peter... Peter denies the Christ and then he's out warming his hands over a fire in the courtyard and this busybody servant girl says, hey, you're one of them. And Peter identifies his incredible intelligence by using a number of Galilean four-letter words, always demonstrates our education level. And she says, uh, no, 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 I know you're one of them. Why? Because your accent gives you away. You can't pronounce the gutturals. I know it's one of you. Those in the Galilee are on the wrong side of the tracks. They're hillbillies. They're unlettered, no degrees, unschooled, uneducated. They're uncouth. That's who they are. Let me illustrate it this way. I'm going to use a political illustration without making a political point. But I think you'll get it. So Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, he refused as a Democrat to vote for President Biden's Build Back Better. So he refused. And AOC from my childhood state, New York, she's not a senator. She's a member of the House from Harlan. She was irate, as were many other Democrats. And do you remember what she said? She said, Joe Manchin is from Appalachia. And Appalachians are so stupid. Not my words, but this is what she said. Appalachians are so stupid, they don't know what's good for Appalachians and the rest of the country. That's what she said. That's what they're saying. I don't understand why God's spirit would work among Galileans. They're hillbillies. They're Appalachians. They're, they can't even pronounce certain gutturals. They're uneducated, unlettered. Why would God work among them? 
And yet, as far as the text goes, the Galileans didn't use that excuse. They didn't use excuses that society would give them. I don't have a standing. I don't have a social level. I don't have an education. I don't have a degree. I don't have a platform. I don't, and we could fill it in with all sorts of statements. They didn't say any of those things. Instead, they had something. You, believer, have something that's better than everything mentioned. We have the Spirit of God working in and through us. And so they began to share the gospel. Now, what happens when you and I share the gospel? Sometimes people come to Jesus. If you've shared the gospel and someone's come to Jesus, you probably remember it. It's just such a joy. It's exciting. It's, it's overwhelming. Thank you, God, for using me to share. But if you also share the gospel, sometimes people just mock us and laugh at us and say, that's, that's not for me. That's, that's so superstitious. And they mock us. What happened at Pentecost empowered by the Spirit of God when the disciples shared the gospel. Verse 47, and God added to their number day by day. And verse 13, it's five o'clock somewhere. Oh, they've been into the new wine. What happened? Some accepted Christ. Others said, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. That's just ludicrous, superstition. How would an educated person ever believe that? What happened at Pentecost is exactly what happens to you and me when we share the gospel. And why wouldn't it? Think of what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He said this, The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing, seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Sometimes people will believe in Christ and sometimes they will not. Do you know what failure is? Failure is not when we share the gospel and someone doesn't believe. If we've shared the gospel... We've done our part. We've done what God commands us to do. It is the Spirit's job to draw, and it's actually the unbeliever's command to believe from the Lord, but that's not ours. Our job is to share. Failure occurs when God's Spirit lays on my heart that I need to share the gospel with this person that I work with, or this person that I recreate, or this person who lives near me, and out of fear and trepidation, I don't. That is failure. Failure is not the results. The results are a work of God, not of Jeff. Apathy is when I allow myself to slide away from the calling of God on my life. The empowerment of the Spirit to tell others about Jesus. I want to close by telling you about John Hyde. 
John Hyde went to be with the Lord in 1912. John Hyde was a missionary to Punjab, India. And the day in which he was going to leave, his home state was Massachusetts. He boarded a ship. He was up in the bow. And before it pulled away, someone handed him a telegraph. And he opened it up and it was unsigned. And it had this little note. John Hyde, are you empowered by God's spirit? And he was offended. He thinks to himself, I'm a missionary. I'm leaving my family. I'm leaving my friends. I'm leaving my state. I'm leaving my country. I'm leaving my people to go halfway around the world to people I've never met. I know very little about. What are you asking me if I'm filled with the spirit of God? And he crumpled it up and he put it in his pocket and ticked him off. And all day long, he was a little bit annoyed. And that night when he was in bed, he was a little bit annoyed and he tossed and he turned and said, God's spirit spoke to his heart. And he realized that he was a believer in Christ. He had been a believer in Christ for years, but he was a self-sufficient believer in Christ. He wasn't asking to the Holy Spirit indwell him. Ephesians 1 The Holy Spirit is a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance. The moment in which you and I accepted Christ as Savior, the Holy Spirit entered us. But this is talking about the daily empowerment to fill our mouths, to say what the Lord wants, to guide our actions and our paths, that we walk in light, not in darkness. This is Ephesians 5.18 Do not be gunk with wine, which leads to debauchery, but be ye filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit, present passive imperative, it's a verb plerao. Present means we ask for it every day. Oh, the Holy Spirit never leaves us and forsakes us, but we're talking about the empowerment of Him, and we've got to ask for that every day, present tense. Passive, we can't do it on our own. We can't be self-sufficient. Imperative. It's a command. We are commanded daily to ask God to empower us by his spirit to do what God wants to do in and through us. And so John Hyde fell to the ground and and asked God for forgiveness for being so self-sufficient. He was used mightily by the Lord. At age 46, he had a malignant brain tumor His last words on earth were these, shout the victory of Jesus Christ. Apathy? No. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing as forceful men lay hold of it. He was in one accord with the brethren, pulling in kingdom ways, empowered individually by the Spirit, looking to bring in the harvest and reliant on the Spirit. That's many of you. May it be all of us. And may we take the next step each and every day asking God to empower us a little bit more. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Empower me to turn from darkness towards light to see the harvest and to see that we're the answer to the prayer for the harvest. Empower us, Spirit. Let's pray.
Father God, uh, it's so much easier to talk about turning from sin and darkness than doing so. So much easier to talk about the harvest as a nameless, faceless metaphor than to think of loved ones and family and friends and coworkers, neighbors and acquaintances. So much easier to talk about these things in the abstract rather than invite your spirit to work in our lives. Father, I thank you for those sisters and brothers who are far from apathy. But for others of us, we have imperceptibly allowed apathy to come into our spiritual walk, our lives. Help us to turn from that and toward, turn towards you, to live for you, for your glory. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.